0: And in the year that I started working in Afghanistan, Ghazni was given this auspicious designation as the cultural capital of the Islamic world. I was tasked to. Go out to Ghazni, this is what I was told. Go out to Gosni and figure out the lay of the land and what do you got out here? Oh, you've got some amazing minarets. Oh, there's a big Buddhist site with some Hindu stuff. What are the needs? How do we approach preservation in this desolate, dusty, scary place? You just figure stuff out.
1: This is Monuments Woman with Laura Tedesco. I'm your host, George Gavrilis. title... This podcast, The Monuments Woman. What's your feeling about it?
0: You know what? It seems like a pair of shoes that's not really your style and they don't fit well, but someone's asked you to wear them. I'm not very fond of the title, The Monuments Woman. What does that mean anyway? And yeah, it evokes the, the movie, The Monuments Men, which was okay. But there weren't really any women in that movie. There was one character who was a woman, the librarian, I think. And so it doesn't feel fitting. Like a bad pair of shoes that don't fit well. It doesn't feel right.
1: I get the uh, simile, but why exactly doesn't it feel right to you? I mean, somebody could say, Laura, you're just being falsely modest. The work you did was amazing. And you should take credit for it, even if it wasn't entirely your doing.
0: I guess somebody could say that. Let's think about it, George, and come up with a different one that's auspicious, but not, I don't know.
1: I wanted Indiana Jones was a woman, (laughs) but I think that (laughs) that's along the same pair of shoes that you don't want to wear, but you know.
0: Do you know what the nickname assigned to me was? What? Both in Gosney and really in many places, I did not ask for this nickname, but it's obvious where it came from, was Laura Croft. And I had never seen the Laura Croft movie. I was vaguely, doesn't she do something with like treasure hunting? I didn't really know what that was other than vaguely had something to do with Antiquities, maybe?
1: The Lori Croft Show.
0: Yeah. That even sounds more yeah. pretentious.
1: Okay. Switching gears, let's do a couple acronyms, if that's okay. I mean, we could organize an entire game show on the basis of acronyms that relate to Afghanistan, right? Mm-hmm. Everything from FOBs to PRTs and so on. But you've mentioned a couple during the course of us talking. Yep. I don't want to assume that every single listener is going to be familiar with some of these acronyms that are ultimately about gruesome things. So, Lori, what's an IED?
0: An IED, George, is an improvised explosive device. It's a homemade bomb that's rigged and placed nefariously to do great damage to a vehicle or a person or a, a donkey cart. Rolling by
1: and what's an MRAP
0: an MRAP. It's a big armored car. Have you seen those cars? Hummers. It resembles a a big Hummer that you might see on the road, you know, in New Jersey, Yep. but an MRAP is a, a, a big armored vehicle. It's not a tank. That's something different. An MRAP is a mine resistant ambush protected vehicle. That's what MRAP stands for. It seats people. There's a driver in the front. It's sort of like a a huge van that's armored to the teeth.
1: I love your descriptions. Now PRT and FOB.
0: So a FOB, F-O-B, stands for Forward Operating Base. And it's basically a kind of fundamentally military outpost, but there would be diplomats also living and working at a FOB, which is why I would have visited FOBs. A PRT stands for Provincial Reconstruction Team. Those were set up all over Afghanistan in the first 12 years, 12, 13 years of U.S. engagement there. And they were diplomatic and military outposts. The PRT refers more to a diplomatic endeavor, but there would have been military present
1: also. Cool.
0: Everything has an acronym.
1: It does. It does. Holy shit. Every time I Google something, there's 20 articles about Afghanistan just going down the toilet.
0: Did you see Kandahar fell?
1: I did not. Yeah. Wait, what happened in Kandahar?
0: The Taliban got it.
1: They did. Shit. Today. Today. Did they take troops hostage?
0: That I don't know. I didn't get through the whole article. I caught it on the New York Times.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, they attacked yesterday and entered it today. Man and more border posts. Great, great. Tell me about the Polish archaeologists, because Poland is a country that most people don't associate with archaeology.
0: The first time I arrived in Ghazni, which was soon after I had arrived in Afghanistan, I might have still had jet lag even. It was pretty soon after having arrived in Afghanistan. I knew in advance I would be meeting these two Polish archaeologists who were embedded with the Polish military. And the Polish military, as one of the many international military forces with a presence in Afghanistan in 2010, the Polish military's so-called battle space, or the area of the country they were responsible for patrolling and taking care of, I, maybe that's not the best way to describe it, but it was their area in Ghazni. They had two archaeologists embedded with them, Marek and Agnieszka, but I called her Aga, and the reason that the Polish archaeologists were with them was because of something that was similar to why the State Department created the job that I have. That dates back to some things that happened in Iraq. When the site of Babylon was damaged very badly by activities of both the US military and the Polish military who were occupying the site of Babylon during the second Gulf War, I believe it was a helicopter landing pad as well as some other installations built on the top of Babylon. And ultimately, the militaries were held responsible for this oversight, for this colossal error. To prevent something like that from happening again, the Polish military decided they better bring some archaeologists along to be embedded with their military in Afghanistan to make sure that no mistake like that happened again because someone didn't know what they were building on. When I met Marek and Aga the first time, I don't know how long they had already been in Afghanistan. Maybe it was only a few months, but they seemed already seasoned and grizzled and dusty and very knowledgeable. They were very fine archaeologists, and they would go out on patrols with the Polish military and survey archaeological sites and make records of what they were finding and document the condition and really invaluable research. I considered them friends as I got to know them, but also as people that I was learning from. Where are they now? That's a good question. I don't know. I've lost touch, but I think of them often.
1: Oh, maybe that's a good reason to track them down. Reconnect.
0: Yeah. In addition to looking at some built monuments, we envisioned uh, two books, one for very young readers, grammar school age, so it would be mostly illustrations, but with a little bit of text, and then a second book for slightly older readers, maybe at the high school or adult level, also illustrated, but with more information in it. And the idea was to talk about the history of Gosney presented in a compelling way. So the United States Embassy, we we devised this plan in collaboration with UNESCO at the time. The U.S. was a member of UNESCO, and so we could uh, engage with them directly on uh, projects in the cultural and educational sector. UNESCO put together these books. We had to coordinate with the Ministry of Education to make sure that the books were distributed. And the sum total of what happened is. The books were written, thousands of copies were printed in Pashto and Dari to be distributed widely across Afghanistan, and the books were never distributed. Why? That is a question for the ages. I don't know what happened to them. Are they still sitting in a storeroom in the Ministry of Education? I don't know if they were shipped to provinces and then were never distributed. I spent about 18 months trying to track down where the books ended up. And the answer was, well, they never got out of Kabul. But I could never understand why or how. That was beyond my realm of what I could access. At some point, I had to move on. It was the cost of doing business in Afghanistan. Some things end up successfully and some things don't.
1: Maybe they're in several undisclosed locations.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, they probably are.
1: A very Afghan story where a lot of stuff, just money spent, And nothing ever comes out of it.
0: And the idea was great, but somehow the implementation, the follow through just wasn't there.
1: Okay, but let's go back again to the question of what exactly is at stake? Why does it matter what is still standing in Afghanistan or what's under the ground? Who is it important to? And you could talk about all of the who's, it doesn't have to be just the Afghan people. I mean, it should be, but who else? Who else is this important to and why?
0: It should be important to everybody. I'm not thinking that people are going to be thinking about this every day, but it should be important to really anybody with an interest in, or a sense of culture, history, human achievement. Certainly to Afghans, It can be important, and I think that it is very important to Afghans. I'm hesitating because, for me, it's sort of like, well, why wouldn't it be important? And it's not saying, oh, let's put all of our attention on Afghan heritage and therefore we're going to ignore other important aspects of, say, maternal health or children's education. These are all separate issues, but cultural survival is or culture needs a seat at the table. Its preservation is merited, and not just for Afghans, but globally. That's my view of it. And I hear a lot, people ask, well, aren't you taking money from building girls' schools to help preserve these old minarets? No, that's not how it works. That's not how money is appropriated for support and for development. It doesn't quite work that way. You hear even the same arguments in the United States. All this foreign aid we're giving, isn't it taking money from bridges and roads and schools in the United States? No, that's not how Congress divvies up the money. But back to your central question, who should it matter to that Afghanistan's heritage is preserved? I think it should matter to everyone. Same with heritage in any country. My view is that it's all of our heritage, really. It's shared. I was rereading my journal, and it's deeply personal. 90% of it is deeply personal.
1: What, what do you mean by that? Personal how, give me an example.
0: Personal how that one of the reasons I moved to Afghanistan in the first place with a one-year-old child at home was I was unhappy in my marriage I'd rather go to Afghanistan than like stick around and it was a good professional opportunity but a very unorthodox decision for a woman to make with two young children at home one of whom as i mentioned was only 1 year old i realized in rereading my journal it's all grappling with What was wrong? What was wrong with me? What kind of mother goes to Afghanistan blindly? I didn't know shit and leaves her kids at home. And, you know, who did that make me as a woman and a mom? So it was a lot of that rumination. And some of it is interspersed with, oh, I had dinner with the French archaeologists. Tonight, and we had cheese and pork, and isn't that interesting in Kabul, where they don't have but suddenly they had bacon. Like, where did the bacon come from? Some of my journal is interspersed with these, "Oh, I met this four-star general today." That was interesting. He seemed very nice. I didn't know four-star generals could be nice. All my naive observations as I was getting to know what I was doing. I knew my kids were getting plenty of love and all of the care, that wasn't a concern for me. It was just what kind of woman leaves her baby at home and voluntarily goes to Afghanistan with one suitcase to do a job that no one has ever done before. And you're just supposed to figure it out.
1: So when did you get an answer to that question for yourself?
0: I don't know if I ever really got an answer for myself, but the work continued, and it's more than a decade, and my kids are older, and life evolved, and actually, I consider having gone to Afghanistan for so long as a blessing in saving my family, but that was definitely not evident at the beginning. I haven't figured out an answer of why I did it, although this might sound weird, but I think I was supposed to in some bigger cosmic way.
1: Well, I love this story because of the many, many, many billions and horrible projects and horrible consequences that the U.S. has had in Afghanistan. It is pretty awesome that saving your marriage is one positive outcome.
0: <laughs> you know what? I think that's true. I do think that's true. Yes,
1: well, but in, in in all seriousness, I want to bring you back to something that is not about you, but is at the core of who you are. And that's your desire to give credit to people around you, which I think is part of your existential angst. And it's also why you're uncomfortable with the title of the podcast, The Monuments Woman, whether specifically or at a high level. Tell us what you mean when you said you weren't the only one doing this work, who was doing this with you, who was supporting you. Who are the people that allowed you to do this?
0: There are too many to be named. It's a whole sort of community. I had Afghan colleagues I was working with at the embassy who would help me figure out how to submit a request to get on a helicopter to go to Ghazni. Like, how do you do that? And then then once you get there, there's somebody who has to have arranged for you to have a place to sleep at night once you get to these new locations where you don't normally belong. Nothing is done in isolation. And then you, you've got to go through 13 layers of supervisors to get permission. Oh, I'm supposed to go out to Zabel for four days. Is that okay? The, the commanding officer invited me to Zabel to go scout for heritage sites. It's very co- collaborative and collective effort. And that kind of thing comes naturally to me because I was born into a family of six children. Nobody gets all the credit for anything. It came very naturally.
1: I love that. I love that conclusion that you reached. Tell me, though, a little bit about some of the Afghans around you, particularly the archaeologists, the museum curators. And I'll tell you something, Laurie. One of the enduring images that is out there in the media when there is a civil war or war and destruction in general, is of the heroic archaeologist or the museum curator that goes into the museum and saves pieces or prevents a mob from entering the museum to destroy it. Who are those Afghans that played that role in your eyes?
0: There's one Afghan in particular. His name is Omar Khan Masoudi, Mr. Masoudi. I may get choked up because he's elder. But I don't know his exact age maybe close to 70, I'm not sure. I met him within my first days of arriving in Afghanistan and and know him to this day and just this week, sent him greetings for a happy Eid. It's an unusual maybe friendship to have for a younger American woman to have become friends with an elder Afghan Pashtun man, Friends isn't quite the right description. Mr. Masoudi is what you were describing the picture of a museum curator or a museum director running into a burning building to save the valuable artifacts. While he may not have done that particular task, he truly can receive a great deal of credit for having preserved Afghanistan's heritage, its patrimony, in some of the most grueling, brutal years of civil war in the 90s. I'd like to write a biography about him one day. I don't think I would ever have access to that personal information like his childhood would maybe be too strange for me to ask him about that. I don't know. In order to write a true biography. I, I really know very little about him. I know he was a refugee in Pakistan for a while. He came back to Kabul. He's an elegant, very important elder Afghan, who I, I think of so fondly, and he refers to me as Laura John, which is a term of endearment. I think it's authentic. I think he really says that authentically to me and not in a patronizing way.
1: I was going to say some things of consciousness that are on my mind. I was making some connections as you were speaking. And so one is to bring Ghazni full circle to where we are today. You were saying in 2010, when you arrive in Afghanistan, the security situation was deteriorating steadily, but it was a great time for the international community because of all the money that was being pumped into the country. And so the mood was really mixed. There was still a lot of optimism. Yeah. And that is not the situation today because we're in the wake of a delayed, but firm U.S. withdrawal of all the remaining troops, except maybe some mentors and trainers here and there. A lot of Taliban attacks recently, including a pretty horrific one that the Taliban didn't take credit for. On a largely Hazara girls' school in Kabul, uh, 85 people were killed. And a couple districts were recently overrun by the Taliban, including a district in the province of Wardak, that sits right on the ring road that connects Kabul to Ghazni. Yeah. And so if you want to drive from Kabul today down to Ghazni to see the minaret, you would be passing through a district that has been overrun by the Taliban. So it's a pretty grim situation. In my mind, I wonder, what this means to the heroes of the cultural heritage that you seek to protect, especially your Afghan colleagues that care so much about the country. But here's what I wrestle with. When it's true that the destruction of the Bamiyan Buddhas are an enduring image of the cruelty of the Taliban and what's at stake for a lot of people that watch this happen in early 2001, I think.
0: Yeah, March of 2001.
1: Yeah, it's an enduring image for a lot of people rooted back before the U.S. went into Afghanistan and before 9-11, but for me, it's something else. It's this, and I don't remember where I watched it. I remember watching a news clip before 9-11, before the U.S. went into Afghanistan, watching a Taliban policeman in Kabul flogging a woman on the street because she was begging to feed her child. He was flogging her because she was out in public when she wasn't supposed to be out in public unattended without a man. Mm. And for me, that resonated more than the destruction of the Buddhas. And so I guess my question to you is, what does that mean about me? What does that mean? What should we care about at the end of the day? And how is the fate of that woman or women like her tied to cultural preservation? How do you answer that for yourself?
0: Yeah. That's a, a very good question, George. I don't parse out what to care about. I hear you. I mean, an image of a woman being flogged in the street because she's unaccompanied with a male family member. She's begging for her children. That's It's unspeakable. I don't even know how to put words to the brutality of that, the destruction of the Buddhas of Bamiyan, also brutal I'm struggling to even find a word to to describe it. So your question, what kind of person does that make you to feel more strongly about the woman being flogged than having seen the Buddhas of Bamiyan be destroyed? I won't make that judgment on you. I wouldn't prioritize what I care about. It's all part of a whole basket of concerns and fears and outrage And a sense of powerlessness. It just so happens I've built my career around cultural preservation, so that often comes to my mind first. But I think about Afghan women every day. I read the news. I read a lot of news about Afghanistan. So I feel quite informed about what's at risk and what's at risk of being lost in terms of Afghan women's presence in society being recognized and acknowledged. That's an enormous topic. But you're right. I mean, the clock is ticking. U.S. military is going to fully pull out. I think everybody wants to be optimistic about what can happen, but I think there's a kind of a view towards, ah, what if it doesn't go well? One has to keep that realistic eye. What if this doesn't go well?
1: I'm glad we're doing this because even though I was a little bit of a devil's advocate with the story I told, I think at the end of the day, this podcast is important because it is about these cultural things that can stitch together a nation, particularly one that's been in conflict for so long. And so many of my Afghan friends are so very proud of the country's richness, but it is not the image that goes beyond the country's boundaries. And another way I thought about it was this, imagine England without Big Ben, without Stonehenge, without some of its most iconic castles and sites, without Hadrian's Wall. I think when we don't care about these things in Afghanistan, it's a little bit of a double standard because we would never say to ourselves, imagine Greece without the Acropolis and the Parthenon, without Mycenae, Turkey without Ephesus, without the Hittite sites. And so I think it's only fair that we get to do this and to talk about Afghanistan and what's at stake. So, so thanks.
0: Yeah, it's great talking to you, George. I'm so glad we met.
1: Me too. And we'll talk about that too one day. You've been listening to Monuments Woman with Laura Tedesco. I'm your host, George Gavrilis. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To stay in touch, also follow us on Instagram at The Monuments Woman. Join us next week when we dive deeper. This show is produced by Christian D. Brun and May 11 Projects. It is recorded by Audovita Studios and edited by Sean Hedinger and Greg Williams. The theme song is This Love by Ariana Dalalari, featuring Solar Nader.